0: You're listening to the Sunday morning message from Clouds Creek Baptist Church. Join us for worship Sunday morning at 11. Or for more information, visit cloudscreek.org. Good morning. How are y'all? A couple of y'all good. Everybody else just declined the answer. It's okay. Uh, I guess you, can, you have the right, right to remain silent. Um, but... uh Welcome back to Corinthians. Uh, Matt mentioned last week, he said it like, well, you know, we just finished this really long series in Corinthians, and I was like, we ain't done yet. We still got a lot more to go. Uh, So we're still in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so we are gonna be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning, Uh, if you wanna open your Bibles there. And we are looking at the church of Corinth. The church of Corinth had a lot of flaws. Just like our church, just like the modern day church has a lot of flaws not necessarily specifically our church, but the church in general, uh, I mean, has a lot of flaws. Not that we're perfect, right? Can we agree that our church is not perfect? A couple nods. I heard, I heard a, uh from, from your, your pastor's wife, which is good. That's a testament to you guys. Um, so anyway, what we're looking at today are, is kind of um, people that say one thing and do another. How many of you guys uh, are Georgia fans? Okay, I'm gonna ask you, to keep your hand up if you're a Georgia fan, but you can't name more than two players on the team. Okay, so there's a couple of you guys, right? There's a couple of you guys that are fans, and you, you might have, like, missed a game, you know, every now and then. You might be like, oh, I forgot that that game was kicked off at 1 o'clock. It, it's 5 o'clock in the afternoon. You're like, oh, man, I missed the game. I wonder what the score was, right? Like, there are those Georgia fans, and I'm not saying that there is anything wrong with that, right? I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with being that kind of Georgia fan. But then there are Georgia fans who plan their entire day around the game. There are people who can tell you who the newest recruits are, who can tell you, hey, we just signed this high school kid. That's like beyond my level of knowledge is when you're like talking about what high school kids are good at high school football. I'm like, I have no idea. I don't, don't know anything about high school football. And so you have this level of fan that's like, man, I am all in. I was talking before, before church to Tara that your grandfather sat in the car before your wedding, listening to the Georgia game on the radio until it was time for him to walk in the door. Yeah, that's impressive. That's dedication right there. And I said earlier that you guys have, you know, you might have thought, oh man, I forgot what time Georgia kicked off. Kevin, have you ever not known when a Georgia game kicked off? No, no. He's got it. He knows the schedule. He knows if there's a possibility they might move the time of the game and he knows what time they might move it to, right? Like there are these fans that it's like, I have got it. So what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians is uh, Israel also had people like this, but with God, right? They had people that like just in name, they're like, yeah, I'm a a Jew. I follow God. But they weren't actually doing what the things that you would expect from someone who says, yes, I follow God. And so we're going to pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse one. You'll see what I mean. He says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. There's this group of people who were following God that were just kind of casual followers of God. They were people who you could say they were God's people by birth, but they were not people of God, if that makes sense, right? Like you might be, there's like Georgia fans, and then there are Georgia fans. You know what I'm saying? Like It's like there's two different groups of people, and it's not actions that made these people people of God or not, because he just talked about the fact that they all followed They all followed the cloud in the wilderness. They all walked across dry land. They all ate the manna, right? They all did the same things that the people of God did. But what happened was that their hearts were not transformed. They didn't follow God in their hearts. When it comes to following God, it's not about actions. It's about being transformed. We as believers should be transformed. Israel had a lot of people who were interested in what God could do for them, right? Like he, he's the one who provided the food. He's the one who rescued them from slavery. He's the one who parted the waters. They were, they were more interested in what they could get from God than what they could give to God. They followed as long as it was beneficial to them. And there are still people in, this, in, in the church today that do the same thing that they are believers, that they are Christians by name, and they come and they sit in church and they do all the things that you would think that Christians should do, but they've not allowed the Lord to change their hearts. There's a lot of you in this room who might have been hurt by those people. There's a lot of you in this room that might have been hurt by the people who wear the name tag of Christian but don't live it out. People that are more concerned with how they look looking like a good person and looking like a good Christian. These are the people who show up to church every week and want to keep God at a distance because they don't want to get their clothes dirty. There are people that, that they are okay with doing the things of God as long as it's beneficial to them and as long as it doesn't take them changing. Jesus addresses these people in Matthew chapter 23. He says, woe to you, Teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything that is unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but at the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus is not addressing lost people with these words, right? He's not addressing people who don't know God. I guess they kind of were lost, but these are not people who have never heard the gospel. They've never heard of God. They didn't know what he'd done for them in Israel. These are the people who heard. And Jesus is almost saying, you should know better. Like of, of everybody, like you're the ones who are teaching. This is, Jesus is almost addressing this to pastors, to deacons, to Sunday school teachers, to the people with perfect attendance in church. Like he's saying this to us and he's saying, if you are, are perfect and shiny and clean on the outside, but filthy on the inside, you have missed the point. Have you guys ever pulled a cup out of the cabinet that you thought that the dishwasher did a good job because it looks clean on the outside and you look down in and you're like, what is in there? Have you guys had that happen? That's exactly what he's talking about. That it's like, when you look at this cup, you're like, oh, this is going to be great. Until you see the inside and you're like, this is disgusting. Well, how did, Why are we even calling this clean? Do you use it after that? A couple of you guys are like, maybe, that's clean, right? <laughs> you don't use it after that. You, you go, this is, we got to try again. And that's what Jesus is saying. Try again. It didn't take. Whatever you tried the first time, it didn't work. Try something different. you got to wash this one by hand now because the dishwasher just wasn't cutting it. you got to change. What happens is that these people that Jesus is talking to, these people that Paul is talking about of Israel, that, that they follow God, they, the, the actions that they portrayed was, we are followers of God, but they didn't live it out. These are people who, who say one thing and live a totally different way. They say, you should be doing this, you should be doing this, you should be doing this. And then they walk out and they don't don't even care about what they just said. They just do whatever they want. They're more concerned with looking good and telling others what they should be doing than applying it to themselves. That's who Paul is talking to. That's who Jesus is talking to. He's saying, hey, look, there are these two different groups and we have to be careful that we don't end up in this group. The work of a Christian is allowing Jesus to change who we are. To soften us into kind and to loving, gentle people, who love others and seek to honor God in how we live. There's no checklist for how we live. What's interesting is that I wrote that down earlier this week when I was writing this message. I wrote there is no checklist, and then I open uh, on oh my my I have like a thing on my iPad that's like the Bible app, and it shows you the verse of the day. And a lot of times it has a picture. So this morning, knowing that I have there is no checklist written in my message, I got this popped up on my, on my Bible app. And if it's too far away, it's okay, I'll read it for you. So essentially, what is that? It's a checklist, right? <laughs> you guys see it now, that's why I brought it up, right? So it's a checklist, and it's like, okay, I guess there is a checklist, but the checklist is far different than what we would expect, right? It's not, make sure you go to church, make sure you read your Bible every day, make sure that you don't watch these movies, make sure you listen to this kind of music, make sure you, that's not the checklist, The checklist is from Luke chapter nine. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, follow me. That's the checklist. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus. It's a very different checklist than a lot of us were taught, right? Like a lot of us are, we're taught this list of rules that it's like, this is the things that you, you should be doing and you shouldn't be doing this. And you have this checklist in your mind of what makes me a good follower, what makes me a disciple. And Jesus says, no, 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 deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. There's a lot of us in this room who have been taught bad theology for years, myself included. I felt like I was raised in a world where it was like, hey, you got to make sure that you do this, these things. This is what makes you a good Christian. But you don't get a resume. You don't get a Christian resume. You don't get to the gates of heaven and you say, all right, God, let's, here, look at all these cool things I did. It's not about handing God a resume because your resume is never going to be enough. When he looks at you, he sees the resume of Jesus. And if you were to hand in your resume or the resume of Jesus, which one do you think is going to be better? It's the easiest church answer I've ever set you guys up for. Come on. Come on. This is, this is an easy one. This is a softball. If you have two resumes to turn in, one is yours and one is Jesus, which one's the better one? Jesus. Jesus. Thank you. That was all, it was easy, right? So we spend this time building up our resume and thinking, look at all this stuff I'm doing. I'm making sure that I look good to the people outside, but inside, it's just dead bones. We have to let Jesus work inside. We have to take up our cross. We have to deny ourselves and let Jesus do this work in us. I speak this to us because I think it's something that's, that's important. I still wrestle with it. That I have to remind myself that it's not about what I have to offer. It's about what Jesus has already done for me. That he has already paid the price for my sin. My sin is forgiven. My job is just to let Him transform me to being more humble, to being more loving, to being kind, to being gentle. The enemy doesn't need to use outside forces to crush Christianity. I saw a book this week that was um, basically the to, to sum it up. It claimed it was a Christian book, but it was in fact not a Christian book. It was just political propaganda. And this this book is talking about these outside forces that are trying to crush Christianity, that are trying to persecute Christianity. I want to tell you the fact that we are not called to stop persecution. At no point in scripture are we called to stop persecution. Because that's not what Jesus did. That's not what the disciples did. What those people did is they preached the gospel on their way down death row. They preached the gospel as they are walking toward the persecution. They didn't fight it off. They preached the gospel. And I bring this up because the enemy knows that it's far more effective to attack the church from the inside. To attack Christianity from the inside. I don't know anybody who has left Christianity or the church because of persecution. Zero people. I don't know how many people that I personally know have left the church because of people inside the church. The enemy knows that it is far easier to destroy believers, to destroy faith by using the people with whitewashed tombs that wear the name Christian and don't live it out. It's far easier to distract us with that, to pull people away with that, than it is persecution. Because in other countries where people are persecuted for the sake of the gospel, where people are killed because of their faith, Christianity is a growing religion. And here, where we're worried about outside forces, Christianity is a shrinking religion. We have to worry about... The people on the inside, and not focusing on the outside, and the enemy knows that, and he has distracted us with the outside so that we don't even notice the wolves in sheep's clothing that are saying, "I'm a believer," listen to me, and living terrible lives. False believers are far more a threat to the church than the government is. Again, I don't know anybody who has stopped going to the church going to church because of outside forces. I know people who stop going to church because of the hurt done by the people that Paul is talking about. I get, I get worked up when I'm talking about this because it makes me legitimately angry. It makes me legitimately angry that, that there are people in the church that give Jesus a bad name while, while waving his banner. I don't want us to be those people. I don't want to be that person. And so it makes me angry because I, I know that I have been that person. I know that I have been the person that has treated people poorly and talk about how how I go to church every week. I've been the person who has given Jesus a bad name. I'm trying to change that to where I'm working more on myself than I'm trying to tell other people what they should be doing. And I want us all to do that. I don't want any one of us to be the reason anybody is pushed away from Jesus. Amen? I don't want any of us to be the reason someone is pushed away from Jesus. Don't get distracted. Don't get distracted by the fact that there might be outside forces trying to push in on us. There's always going to be that. We were promised persecution. We need to be focused on making sure that we are not the the, the bad examples. We need to be focused on calling out those who are. Saying, look, I, I don't know what's going on, but that's what Jesus did. He said, listen, something is not lining up here. Because you say this, but your life is totally different. Paul talks about the people in Israel who didn't, who didn't get it. Those who followed and who, who were, were, fell short. And he gives us these examples as warnings. And we know that from the first verse that he brings up. He references these Old Testament passages. So this next, next section of verses, we're going to be bouncing back and forth from Corinthians to mostly Numbers to see... What he is saying to the people of Corinth is something that happened to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And again, okay, so to start off, I'll just keep going, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, it says, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Keep that in mind that this is the purpose, and this is not the last time that Paul says that. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and then got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. Do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Again, we're going to break each one of these things down, but I think there are, there are four things that Paul specifically warns. He says, watch out for idolatry, for sexual immorality, for testing God, and for grumbling. Watch out for these four things. The first one we see is idolatry. Again, he says, do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. This, this that Paul is referencing happened in Exodus when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to be with God, and what happens is that he's gone for a little bit too long, I guess, And the people of Israel decide, "Hey, you know what? We need to do some things." So uh, this comes from Exodus chapter 32 verse four. It says, "He took being Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast, out, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And he, then he, they said, "These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt." When Aaron saw this, he, ha- he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow we will have a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. That's the phrase that you saw Paul use just a second ago. That's how we know he's referencing this passage in Exodus. And he's pointing out that these people, they just went through the motions of worshiping God so that they could do- go do whatever they want. You might have been that person. You might have experienced or known that person who it's like they get up and they go to church just so that they can get that out of the way and go do whatever they want. Or they they do whatever they want on Saturday night and then they get up and go to church like that's going to just make it all better. Then they go back to whatever they want to do. And that's what Paul is warning of here. Is watch out for idolatry. Watch out for idolatry. I am not the Holy Spirit. None of you guys are, should be surprised by that. I am not the Holy Spirit. So I cannot tell you what is idolatry in your life. That's going to be up to you. It's going to be up to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So I can't say, hey, these are the things that, that are idols in your life. Because I don't, I don't know what those things are. We have too many people in this room to just go, all right, let's go through each one and talk about what could be an idol in your life, right? And it's not my job. But I think there's a good place to start is if there's something that you are constantly picking over God. And I don't necessarily mean church. I don't necessarily mean um, anything like that. I, I mean that if there is something that you are saying, you know what, I don't, I don't really have a qu- time for a quiet time because I have blank. Or I don't really have time, maybe it is church, I don't really have time to go to church because blank. I don't really have time to spend time with God in, in worship because I have to, to work on this. Whatever those things could be, it's probably a good place to start looking. To start examining and say, hey, is this thing an idol? And I think that you, you could your flesh is probably gonna push back and say, no, 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 this is not, this isn't an idol, this is totally fine. Don't even think about it. That's, that might be your flesh's natural instinct, is to say, no, no, this is fine. Don't even like don't don't look in that corner. It's okay. You know, like you ever had people over to your house and you're like, just don't, just don't, don't go in that room. This room is, don't worry about it. And so if, if that's the room that you're supposed to look in and if your flesh is like, nah, it's fine. We don't need, we, our, our house is fine with, with uh, you know, 150 less square feet. Like we're, we don't need that. We don't need that at all. That might be the place you need to start examining and saying, can I go without this thing? Think about fasting from it. Can you go a day, a week, a month without whatever that thing is? And if your answer is no, it's probably a good indicator that that should be something you should examine of if this is an idol in your life. It's kind of, again, the point of fasting. The point of fasting is to remind us that God is sufficient to sustain us. That there is nothing else that we should need, including food, which, I mean, if we're talking about whatever it is that could be an idol in our life versus food, which also could be an idol in your life. But if you compare those two things, you're like, well, food is obviously more important. But if it's something that we're consistently putting God off for that thing, that's where it could be idolatry. What is the number one priority in your life? The answer to that question will help you to to avoid this warning that Paul is trying to give us. He's like, be careful. Be careful. Watch out for the pitfalls of idolatry. Because it doesn't just happen overnight, right? Like the people of Israel didn't just wake up one morning and be like, let's build an idol. We don't, we don't, you know, this is, it's about time. We just should do it. Just had this idea on a whim, right? There are these small compromises, these small steps that they were walking away from God that led to this moment. And so Paul is saying, be careful that that doesn't happen in your life because it doesn't just happen, this is something that is slowly creeps in, that these small decisions end up leading down a different path. Each day you're taking a step further off of the path until eventually you've totally wandered off. So watch out. Make sure that you're not, you're not straying off of this road headed toward idolatry. And idolatry, in and of itself, is turning from God because we don't think He is enough. Whatever that thing is, whatever it is that you, you are drawn to, maybe it's that you don't, uh, you don't think God is satisfying enough, so you seek satisfaction in something else. Or maybe you don't think God uh, is capable of providing, and so it's like, well, then I have to do that. Or maybe it's that you don't think God is, is um, enough for you relationally, and so you, seek, you, you prioritize relationships above God. Whatever it could be, it's because we don't think God is enough, and so we seek other things instead of God. Does that make sense? We, we think, okay, look, there something is missing, and I need to go find it. That's idolatry. Something is missing from God, and so I need to go find it. And, and in reality, the more we understood God, the more we grasp who he is and how great he is, the less we would look for those other things. So in reality, I, idolatry is a lack of knowing, a lack of understanding, a lack of belief in God is what leads us to idolatry. The next thing that Paul brings up is sexual immorality. He says we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. Paul references a, a situation from the book of Numbers. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's, it's a little bit graphic. Uh, if you want to read it, that's fine, and no judgment because it's in the Bible. Um, but I'm going to read. So what Paul is talking about is Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 9 is really kind of where that story runs. We're just going to read the first three verses. And again, if you want to read the rest on your own, more power to you. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. And the Lord's anger burned against them. And then it says that there's a plague um, that, that wiped out. 24,000 of them is what it says here. There's a reason for the number of discrepancy from what Paul says. It's a whole thing. We're not going to get into it. Um, and this situation is kind of a mixture of the first one we talked about, and sexual immorality into one. This is kind of idolatry and sexual immorality uh, together. So watch out for idolatry. Watch out for sexual immorality And this is something that Paul has brought up a couple times in 1 Corinthians that we've seen kind of over and over is this running issue of sexual immorality in the city of Corinth and in the church at Corinth. And sexual immorality is not just about physical actions. It's also what you put into your mind. It's it's where you go on the internet. It's how you think. Don't let the enemy trick you into thinking it's not wrong because it's just not happening, happening physically. Right. If you are engaging in any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage, the enemy is leading you astray. They are le- he is leading you down this path. We live in a culture that is obsessed with sex, and it, it, you can't even hardly watch a show on TV without some kind of nudity. And I feel like Maddie and I we we check into every show before we watch it. It's like, we got to, you got to make sure, because you never know. All of a sudden, you're watching a the show, and then there's nudity. And you're like, I didn't. Even, this is not even what this show is about. But for some reason, this is on my television now. You have to be careful. You have to be on guard. It's something that Maddie and I specifically guard against, because it's something that we have seen, and something that we have experienced that has impacted our lives, is when sexual immorality creeps into a family. There are, it does so much damage. It does damage to your kids. It does damage to your marriage. It does damage to your kids' future marriages. There's a lot of damage that can be done from sexual immorality, and it's everywhere. The unrealistic expectations and false definition of love have even found their way into the church. Flee from sexual immorality. Put guardrails up for your family. Make sure you know what your kids are doing on their screens. Make sure you monitor, know where they're going on the internet, who they're talking to. Learn from the bad example that the nation of Israel set that you cannot be fully seeking God and willfully engaging in sexual immorality. I've offered this before. Men, if this is something you struggle with, please come talk to me. Know that it's completely confidential, there's no judgment. I've been in it. I know what it's like to struggle in this sin, and I want to provide help if possible. And ladies, same for Maddie. If if you are struggling with this, is this something you need to talk to someone about? You can go to Maddie and know that it's confidential, and all we want to do is help because you can feel stuck. And we want to provide you with resources that we have found, that we have been shown, that can help with this struggle. I talked about idolatry, and, and the root of idolatry is, is that God is not enough. Similarly, the root of sexual immorality is that it's a sin rooted on turning your back on God's plan. It is a sin rooted on not trusting God, that His design for sex is the perfect one, that He has designed sex for marriage, and what happens is that sexual immorality perverts it, His beautiful design, and denotes it, and and it promotes a cheap alternative. And we know this. We know that sex has been perverted because a lot of you are probably a little uncomfortable with how many times I've said sex on the stage at church. But this is something that God created for marriage. God created it to be part of His plan. It's supposed to be a beautiful and pure part of his will for marriage. And what's happened is that we've experienced that it feels wrong because the sex that we've been taught is wrong. The the idea of sex that the world has given us, which is mostly the only place we ever hear or talk about it, is from the world. It is wrong. And so when we talk about it in the church, it feels wrong because we're not thinking about the one that God has created, that it is designed for good. This sexual immorality is seeking our own temporary pleasure instead of God's best. Again, it's that idea that what God has is not enough, and so I have to take my satisfaction, my desires, into my own hands because God's design is not good enough. And so we are seeking this outside of God's plan. Paul continues with, with another warning. He says, We should not test Christ as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. The enemy is going to attack your very belief in God. This story comes from Numbers chapter 21. He says, It says, They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but most people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Talking about the manna. And the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. Do you guys also feel sometimes like people who complain should get bit by a snake? Is it just me? Okay. Sorry. I'm going to actually merge this idea that that Paul talks about with the next one, because they're a similar concept, this idea of testing God and grumbling. Um, So Paul warns, and he says, Do not grumble as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. Again, from Numbers chapter 14, it says, So the men of Moses had sent to explore the land who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about it. These men who were responsible for spreading the bad report around the about the land were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. And the word plague there, when Paul talks about the destroying angel, it's literally talking about the angel that came and destroyed all of the firstborn in Egypt. So it's the same angel, that's why it's called a plague here, is it's that plague that came and destroyed these men who spoke bad about the land that God was giving. In both of these instances, their faith in God had wavered. When we test God and when we grumble, our faith in God wavers. So watch out for testing God and grumbling. Again, they both come from this place of doubt. Testing God specifically is the practice of trying to back God into corners through ultimatums. And so they're kind of like, you know, if you were a good God, you wouldn't have let us out of Egypt. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have us here. It's the same as if you say, you know, like, God, if you're real, you will let me win the lottery. You guys heard people say that before, right? Or Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump. Anybody remember? I love Forrest Gump. But, you know, he, he's like, hey, if you're real, strike with my lightning. And then he does what happens, right? So... What happens is that we we start to test God by trying to put him against himself. This happens to to Jesus in in Matthew chapter 4. Satan is tempting him and he takes him up to the top of the temple and he says, you know, hey, look, this is, you could jump down. And he actually is quoting Psalm 91 and he says, he will command angels concerning you and they will lift you up with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan is creatively quoting scripture to tell Jesus, hey, you know what? You could jump off this this building and the angels are going to protect you. And that's correct. And Jesus responds by saying, we're also told to not put God to the test. And Jesus quotes scripture to put Satan in his place and say, we're also not called to put God to the test. I'm going to point out that there is a different word for test that is used in the book of Malachi that uh, when we talk about, Malachi 3.10 says bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this says the Lord Almighty and see that I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there is not room enough for it. And then the word test here is actually a different Hebrew word than the word that is used in in numbers than the word that is used by uh, Paul in Corinthians. This is a different kind of test. The word test used in Malachi is like hey let me show you all this good stuff I can do, right? Like, I'll I'll show you how good I am. And the word test used in a negative way has its root in doubt. It's like, hey, I don't really think you're real. And if you're real, you would do this. You see the difference there? Is it's like, hey, you're real and so I know you can do this. That's that kind of test. And then there is, hey, I don't think you're real unless you do whatever this is. That's the difference in those words of testing. Word used by Paul is a type of testing that is without faith. And similar, similarly, grumbling also comes from doubt. Doubting that what God has for us is best. When we complain about our situation, especially when we're complaining to, to people around us who don't know God, if we're just complaining about whatever it is, we're communicating that, that what God has is not actually the best, right? It's like if, I can't believe I have to do this, Ugh, this is awful. We're saying, hey, what God has is not the best thing. And if he would listen to me, I could have done this better, right? Like if it were up to me, like I wouldn't be in this situation and things would be a lot better. But we know that that's not true. We know that in Romans it says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. So when we're grumbling and when we're complaining... We're just communicating that that God is not good enough. His plan is not good enough. And this doesn't mean that we can't mourn sadness. It doesn't mean that we can't be angry at injustice. It just means that if it ever causes us to complain against God, that's when it crosses over into sinfulness. We have to watch out for this practice of testing God and of grumbling and not allow it to creep in. All of these things that, that Paul writes, it's not just to condemn, right? I don't, I don't want you to hear that this morning. This is not to condemn you, and I don't want you to feel that. He's calling to mind the examples of what happened in the Old Testament. He's saying, hey, look, I don't want you to end up like the people of Israel who ended up, I mean, you, all those passages we read, there's a lot of people that died, right? A lot of people that were God's people that died because they weren't actually people of God. This is not Paul's opinion. I love that he's doing that. He's, not, he's saying, look, this is not just my opinion about what's wrong. This is not Paul saying, hey, this is what I think you should do. He's saying, look, if we look at what happened in Israel back here, a lot of people died because they were doing this stuff. So I think it's pretty obvious that God doesn't like this, right? Like safe to say that this isn't just Paul's opinion piece of you probably shouldn't do this, but this is like, no, for real, like there's a lot of people that died because they did these things. And so Paul is, is using that to, to validate these things. He's pointing out this is stuff we have to watch out for so we don't end up straying off. Continuing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 11, he says this phrase again, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think that you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. We have to watch out because you are under attack. You are under attack. In the world of addiction, they talk about uh, the fact that the most dangerous place to be is to think that you're done. The most dangerous place to be is to think, I don't struggle with that anymore. That's why you can hear people who have been sober for decades say, I'm an alcoholic. And they use it in the present tense because they're on guard. Similarly, that's why we should say I am a sinner is because I know that that's where I'm headed back to if I'm not on guard. I'm an idolater. I'm sexually immoral. I test God. I grumble. I complain. If we don't identify that, That's where we're going to end up going back to. That's why Paul says, don't stand there and think, you know what? I can't fall. Because if you're standing firm and thinking, I can't fall, that's exactly when you're going to fall. There's two phrases that Paul uses here that have actually been misappropriated, that are misquoted, and misused commonly. And you might have heard them and been like, oh, I've heard that before. And the first was, uh, you've probably heard people say, God won't give you more than you can handle. Have you guys heard that before? That's not true. God absolutely will give you more than you can handle. I'm sure when those of you who have had a cancer diagnosis heard the word cancer, your first thought wasn't, I can handle this. I know that when I was called into ministry and started at 19, and when I started pastoring this church at 29, my thought wasn't, I can handle this. Because let me tell you, if my thought had been, I can handle this, y'all wouldn't be here. This would have been a disaster if I tried to do it by myself. It would have been awful. And you've probably been through things that you're like, I could not have gotten through that on my own. God will absolutely give you more than you can handle so that you will lean on him. But when it comes to temptation, he will never let you be tempted more than you can bear. Because God doesn't want you to fail. He is not setting you up for failure. The second verse that's misquoted is a, you might have heard people say, well, when God closes the door, he opens a window. Also not in the Bible. It's also a misquotation from this verse. Because let me tell you, there are times that sometimes God closes the door because he wants you to stay in the room. Sometimes he's like, no, 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 you got to stay here. Don't start looking for windows because sometimes he closes the door and says, no, 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 no. This is where you're supposed to be. Calm down. Stop trying to look for it. This is not an escape room, right? Like, stay here. But what happens is we, we don't trust God, and it's almost a, a response to that grumbling and complaining, Is it's like, you know what, if I'm in this situation I don't like, there's, gotta, there's a window. No. Sometimes he just wants you to stay where you are. The real quotation that is being misquoted here is that he, he is always going to provide a way out of sin. You are never going to be, he's not going to just shut a door and trap you in there with sin. He is always going to provide a way out of sin. God wants you to succeed when it comes to temptation. That's why Paul wrote this. It's what a good father does. Zeke loves baseball right now. I know, like a month ago, I told you about how much he liked soccer. It's changed. It's baseball now. He is all about baseball. And when I throw him the baseball, how do you think that I throw the baseball? I'm, I can promise you I'm not throwing it as hard as I can because that would just destroy the kid's confidence, right? Like if I'm just smoking it by him every time, I'm like, come on, you got to swing faster. This is going to be terrible. No, I set him up for success. I throw it underhanded. I toss it right down the middle. I throw strikes as, as much as I try to throw strikes every time, right? I'm trying to set him up for success. Similarly, God, when he is allowing you to be tempted, God does not tempt. That's also in a different section of scripture. God does not tempt you. He does allow you to be tempted, though. But he's never going to let it be a 98 mile hour fastball if you can't handle a 98 mile hour fastball. He's tossing you these temptations that it's like, you can handle this. I'm going to give you a way out. I'm going to provide you with help. I'm going to provide you with the ability to escape this temptation. I'm not going to give you more than you can handle. That's the God that we serve. We we serve the God who specifically wrote through Paul, I want you to succeed. Watch out for these things. Watch out for these things that people have done in the past and learn the lessons from them. Don't let it all be in vain, right? Learn from people's mistakes. Don't just go through the motions of following God through your actions. Guard your hearts and your minds. Surrender them to God. Watch out for the pitfalls have caught believers in the past. I love that Paul uses the phrase when he says, these warnings are for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Everything that God was doing was to bring Jesus to save us. This was all leading up to the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the salvation of those who believe. This is all done for us. We are the culmination of the ages, is for us. That's why God did all of this. So let's take that responsibility and live in a way that honors God and shows his goodness, not trying to show our own goodness, to the world around us. We have to allow him to transform us, to surrender to him, to be aware and to be vigilant against the attacks of the enemy because he is actively trying to lead you astray from the God who knows best and loves you more than you can fathom. Amen? Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us to be vigilant, that we would watch out for these pitfalls that Paul specifically warned Corinth of that we would watch out for the, the small decisions that lead us down away from the path that we should be on. That we would watch out for the pitfalls of idolatry, of sexual immorality, of testing you, and of grumbling. God, that we would not become people who just follow you in, in name only. God, that we are not just becoming believers by, by title and living like dead bones on the inside. That we are not hurting people in the name of Jesus, but God, that we would be loving, we would be caring, we would be kind, we would be gentle, pointing others to the God who saves. And let us watch out for these pitfalls to be be guarded against those, but not guarded against you and to allow you into our hearts to transform us.